1: Hello, has there been a breakthrough in understanding the genetic underpinnings of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder?
2: And they compare the entire genome looking for tiny changes in each individual genome and trying to find associations between the diagnosis and a certain pattern of changes.
1: And celebrating the 50th anniversary of the mother of all demos.
0: The most important ideas are not the technology. In a way... People took Doug's ideas and they were standing on a whale fishing for minnows.
1: I'm Kenneth Couquier and you're listening to Babbage on Economist Radio. But first, a commercial taxi service based on self-driving cars is now a reality. Waymo One, by Waymo, which is a unit of Google, has announced that it is beginning commercial taxi service in Phoenix, Arizona is fulfilling a longstanding promise to offer such a service by the end of this year. But it comes at a time when both proponents and detractors argue whether self-driving cars are just around the corner or a little further down the road. With me in the studio to discuss what the development means is Tim Cross, our technology editor. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. And Tom Stanage, our deputy editor, who's also written a special report on self driving cars. Hello, Tom. Hello, Ken. Tim, to you first, what is new about the announcement today?
3: Well, what's new, in theory at least, is that this is something that Waymo has been promising for a long time. And they said, by the end of 2018, we will have self-driving taxis in Phoenix, which you can hail from the street. And they'll, they'll take you to sort of different places around the city. And they're seen as, of all the many, many firms working on self-driving cars, they're seen as the ones who are sort of furthest ahead – and have the best chance of making this happen. So they've now, in one sense, fulfilled their promise and actually launched the service. But I think when you look a little closer, it's pretty much the softest launch you could possibly manage. Why is it the softest? Well, because when you look a bit below the surface, not that much has actually changed from the testing program they were doing up until now. So there's now an app you can download and use to um, hail these things. They will now charge you to take you where you want to go. But it's restricted in lots of ways. So only people who are already part of what was effectively the beta test program can use it. There are still human safety drivers in the car. And it's limited to a fairly sort of small geographical area of Phoenix itself.
1: Okay. So self-driving car launches with driver and
4: car. Tom, should I be optimistic about this or pessimistic? Well, I think people will look at this in different ways. Some people will look at it and say, look – They're really here. Self-driving cars have arrived. They're not just some sort of science fiction thing. There really are people now who can hail these things, get into them, go from A to B and so on. And other people will say, this shows just how far away the dream of self-driving cars really is. And both groups are right. That's because the dream is this sort of fantasy where we wake up one day and our cars can take us anywhere and we get into them and push a button and off we go. And that's not going to be how this works. The way it works is actually going to be by building out incrementally from exactly the sort of thing that Waymo is doing in Phoenix and that other firms are starting to do elsewhere as well. It's going to work in very limited circumstances for a very limited number of people and then they're gradually going to expand it. And so this is a landmark moment. I think it is in some senses, because they are actually charging people to take these cars. Yes, there are safety drivers in them, but Waymo seems to have the best record for how infrequently the safety driver has to intervene. So... I imagine they're doing this because they're being absolutely belt and braces about the whole thing, but they have been operating during the testing period some of the time without safety drivers in the car. So we'll see how quickly this happens. But this is the rubber hitting the road, if you like, and the thing to watch will be how quickly they expand it, how quickly they take out the safety drivers, how quickly they open it up to to other people. Should competitors to
1: Waymo be concerned that someone has stolen their march? Tim?
3: I think there's two ways to look at that. I think if if Waymo's trial, you know, mostly works, then I think that'll be good for the rest of the industry. It'll give people a bit of confidence that, like Tom said, there might not be a big bang, but slowly these things can, can sort of move out of the very limited, almost test environments that they're in. If they struggle or if they have, you know, Let's hope they don't. But if they have, you know, high profile accidents, then you might see that causing problems, not just for Waymo, but for for everybody else.
4: I think the other thing this will do is this will reset expectations or make expectations a bit more realistic about what these things really are. So they're not, you know, wonderful magic cars that are essentially identical to what we have now, but drive themselves. They are a new form of public transport in effect. And that means that over the course of 2019, as Waymo and other companies implement these things, people will start to adjust what their or their idea of the dream of the self-driving future looks like. And it will start to become a bit closer to the reality of where the reality is going.
1: Now, on the great day of the personal computer, there was the IBM clone in which there was lots of makers who would sell computers. But inside, it was largely a chip from Intel and software from Microsoft is Waymo going to be the intel inside of self-driving cars?
4: We're not sure yet. So Waymo's boss has talked about there are various ways that they might try and make money from this. They could license a technology directly to car makers. So that would be a sort of Android of autonomous cars. They could operate their own fleets. Do they want to get into building cars? No, they don't. So they're obviously going to have some sort of partnership with the metal bashers who actually build cars. There are other companies like Baidu of China who have explicitly got a we want to be the Android of cars model. And then there are companies like GM and GM. GM has its uh, autonomous car division called Cruise, and their special source, if you like, is that you know we are going to be the company that builds everything end-to-end, and we think that having that integrated model, a bit like the Apple of self-driving cars, is going to give you a superior user experience. We simply don't know yet, and the next thing to watch out for is whether this gives GM more confidence to launch its service, which it's planning to do next year. So that's the next sort of deadline on the calendar for self-driving cars.
1: How interesting. Tom, thank you very much. Thank you. Tim, thank you. Thanks, Ken. Next up, to one of the most controversial topics in psychiatry, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD. Some people are upset that there's not enough recognition for the condition, while others argue that the condition is diagnosed far too readily as an excuse for bad parenting. The reason for such conflicting opinions is that it's been a challenge to understand the genetic underpinnings of the condition, but this could be about to change. To discuss this, I'm joined by Katrine Braik, a science correspondent at The Economist. Hello, Katrine. Hello, Ken. Why is the condition sort of not really respected as a full-fledged disorder in the medical community?
2: So I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about ADHD. In the States, certainly, a lot of children seem to be diagnosed with it. They are treated with a well-known drug called Ritalin. There can be a sense that at the least sign of symptom or perhaps hyperactivity that any child is given Ritalin in order to deal with things that are actually just part of the normal spectrum of regular childhood behaviors. On the other hand, it's very clear that certainly some parents feel like there is a real condition there, that there's something really wrong. And in fact, in psychiatry, it's recognized as a condition. Twin studies have shown that something like between 70 and 80 percent of the condition is inherited, that there's a strong genetic underpinning for this.
1: Okay, so let's talk about the research. What do the researchers do to Produce their findings, and what were those findings?
2: Yeah, so despite the fact that these twin studies do suggest there's a strong genetic underpinning, nobody so far has been able to actually pinpoint what parts of the genome are responsible for ADHD, and that's not unique to ADHD, right? We know that there are lots and lots of diseases and conditions in humans generally where we can see that they're inherited, but we don't know what part of the genome is responsible for that. Generally, the reason for that is that it's not one gene, one condition, that it's a confluence of different genetic changes in an individual's genome that lead to these symptoms. And so identifying a whole suite of genetic changes is much more difficult than just identifying one gene that's been mutated or that exists as a variant in an individual.
1: But the researchers have struck pay dirt.
2: Yes. So what this study is, is is first of all, the result is the first time that we have a conclusive identification of genetic underpinnings for ADHD. So that's very important. What they've done is they've called on a type of study called a genome-wide association study. And what that does is it compares the genomes of a large number of individuals, in this case 50,000 individuals, 20,000 of whom have been diagnosed with ADHD. And they compare the entire genome looking for tiny changes in each individual genome and trying to find associations between the diagnosis and a certain pattern of changes. So you're not looking at this individual has a whole gene that's different. You're looking at tiny, little, single, what's known as a single nucleotide polymorphism, otherwise known as a SNP. If you think of DNA as being a suite, a sequence of letters, then it's a single letter that's been changed in a gene. So does
1: this mean that it'll become much easier to diagnose ADHD?
2: So that's a ways down the line. And the reason for that is, remember earlier I mentioned that twin studies suggest that roughly 70 to 80 percent of cases of ADHD have some kind of genetic underpinning. In this case, they've identified 20% of the heritability, 22% in fact. So what they've identified are what's known as common risk factors. These are risk factors that pretty much everybody carries and a sort of accumulation of these risk factors might lead to symptoms, but what they haven't identified are rare risk factors. So it's very likely, geneticists and psychiatrists agree, that there are genetic changes where if you carry that genetic change, you're almost certain of developing the condition. Here, they're not looking at those. By definition, they're rare, and so it's going to take completely different studies in order to identify those. What they're looking at here are the risk factors that we all carry, but each one of those risk factors only carries a small amount of risk. You need to add them all up in order to get a diagnosis.
1: But at the very least, now we can prove that ADHD is something very real.
2: Yes. So I think parents of children with ADHD can take some comfort in the findings of this research.
1: Catherine, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Regular Babbage listeners know that occasionally we give away a free book and one free book on the Babbage podcast, but we do so to the listener who writes in to us answering in a clever way a question that we pose. Last week on the show, we posed the question, what is the name of the company and technology that we're not really aware of because it didn't really work out? It couldn't cross the chasm probably because of a product market fit. We received a cornucopia of answers from around the world. Some of those answers included Nokia, an LG touch phone before the iPhone, an early version of the web browser, a battery company for electronic vehicles, and even things like the Sony Betamax video format, Kodak flubbing digital cameras, and Xerox failing to monetize Windows and the computer mouse. But the two most interesting answers we received was one listener who said, the ancient Egyptians failed to realize electricity even though they had all the ingredients. They had copper, they had iron, they had frogs, like in the early experiments in the 1700s, they had salt water and zinc, everything you need for a battery. But our favorite answer was the Sun Power Company by Frank Schumann, formed in 1908. It had the capability to produce steam engines powered by solar energy. The listener emailed to us, quote, The beginning of World War I and the discovery of cheap oil stopped Schumann's company and ideas dead in their tracks. We're sending him a copy of the book, and we encourage all Babbage listeners to participate in the future. Next week, we're going to have a special holiday giveaway. And finally, December 9th is the 50th anniversary of a landmark computer demonstration referred to as The Mother of All Demos, presented by Doug Engelbart.
0: The research program that I'm going to describe to you is quickly characterizable by saying, if in your office you as an intellectual worker were supplied with a computer display backed up by a computer that was alive for you all day and was instantly responsive to every action you had, how much value could you derive from that?
1: To discuss this, I'm joined on the phone by Paul Sappho, a futurist with over two decades of experience exploring the dynamics of large-scale, long-term change. He teaches forecasting at Stanford University. Hello, Paul. Hello there. So first, tell us, what was the mother of all demos?
0: It was this absolutely astounding event. It was the first time that anyone put all the pieces together for computing, multiple windows, two-way video conferencing, shared documents, the mouse. It was this vast shift. The Earth sort of shifted on its axis. Before then, machines were mainly about crunching numbers. And what that demo did was it demonstrated that computers were social devices and moreover, social devices that could become a powerful tool for improving the world. How is
1: the anniversary being celebrated?
0: Uh, Computer History Museum is having a one-day seminar this this weekend, and that'll be put up on the web, of course, and then a special evening event later in the week. So it's a gathering of the tribes, and the best part is it's uh, a lot of young engineers coming. This is not just a bunch of old programmers getting together to reflect on the past, the focus is very much on how do we continue to use Doug's ideas, because many of them remain overlooked. How do we look at his papers and his ideas and tackle the problems facing humanity, which have gotten more challenging than ever.
1: What are some of those overlooked ideas that if we were to implement today, technology would look different?
0: The most important ideas are not the technology. In a way, people took Doug's ideas and they were standing on a whale fishing for minnows. They pulled out the mouse. Doug considered that his least important contribution. They created personal computing. Doug hated personal computers. He said this is about networking and collaboration. One of Doug's most important His two most important ideas, the first one is augmentation, that we can use these machines to create a new home for the mind, to augment human intellect, to become more powerful tools to meet our challenges. And the second notion that is in popular currency today, but Doug was the guy who who really brought it forward, was bootstrapping that you use the tools we have to build better tools, and that that way you get an exponential benefit rather than just a linear benefit.
1: Now, I'm sure most people learning about the mother of all demos and studying it are really struck by probably one of the most startling aspects of it. The demo actually worked. How (laughs) does it happen? (laughs) That a computer demo does what it's supposed to do. Let me turn that into a serious question. Why is it that often technology fails.
0: Uh, Yes, we call it the demo effect, that the the greater the stakes and the larger number of people in the audience, the more likely things will completely collapse. In this case, the answer is quite simple. The demo gods smiled on us on that day in December 1968. There were, however, some very hairy uh, problems running in the background and Doug on stage was the consummate engineer. He just skated right over him and nobody noticed.
1: How many people were working behind the scenes?
0: It was a surprisingly small number of people. It was Doug's entire team. uh, And they were using lease lines and they had a truck parked on a mountaintop to relay microwave signals. One of the wonderful details was one of the people working behind the scenes was Stuart Brand, working as a audio tech for Doug. Stuart Brown, who would go on and uh, start the Whole Earth Review and everything else. Another example that even the people working behind the scenes had their lives changed by the demo. That's great.
1: Paul, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. Don't forget, if you want to read more of any of our stories, subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or 12 pounds. And don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. It matters a lot. I'm Kenneth Kukie, and in London, this is The Economist.
2: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation...